The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Ladies, it's a joy to be with you this evening. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. My responsibility is to invite you into this book over the next several weeks of study. And I'm excited to do this. I'm excited that I met a church that celebrates the Word of God and instilling its members with it. This is a sweet book with rich life and it will magnify our risen Savior. And I'm eager for you to sit under this teaching, not just mine, but from Pam. Let's pray. Father, where would we be without a Redeemer to enter into our brokenness and make a way where there was no way and to do so from a specific Redeemer from Bethlehem, the bread of life. Meet us this evening, and may this truly invite these ladies into a several-week pursuit of you in these rich four chapters. Help us, we pray, tonight. Give us ears to hear, and let our hearts burn like those on the road to Emmaus as we see anticipations of the Son. In Christ I pray, amen. Okay, the book of Ruth. We want to, my my hope is to look at four different things tonight. You certainly can take notes, but everything I have to say I've already given to you. So you can just listen with your Bibles open. We're going to engage some. but I probably have a one-hour lecture and we're going to work through it in 45 minutes. So we can keep that in mind. I want to start out by considering the setting in time. This book opens, Ruth 1.1, in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. A famine in the land of Israel, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So so we start out here with the days that the judges ruled. And I want us to think right off the bat, as we're, th- this book is wanting us to find itself in a period of the judges. So... When you think about the period of the Judges, that is, the book of the Judges, what comes to mind? Good things or bad things? Bad things. So, in the structure of Israel's political sphere, where does the book of Judges fall? After after Joshua's death, but before kings are on the throne. So we start out, and our first, our first thing that we want to know is that this story that's going to take place principally in Bethlehem 
is during the days when there's no king on the throne. This is the days when the tribes are all distinct and each tribe is operating independently, yet there's a united reality. These are the united tribes of Israel. And second, the days of Israel's canonization. Now, if you look in the dictionary, that word's not going to show up. But what do you think I mean when I say canonization, when Israel becomes canonized? Increasing descent, moral immorality. That's exactly right. Remember, in Deuteronomy 9, Moses stresses, Israel, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm giving you this land, but it's because of their wickedness. So God has decided, this is going to be my sacred space, and just like the temple, all the land is going to be holy to Yahweh, and so he's, going, he, he's called, just like he did at the flood, it was time to eradicate wickedness on a global scale. Now at a very localized scale, he's chosen, here's where I'm going to plant myself, and therefore it needs to be clean. And so he's called Israel to kick out the wickedness, lest they become, all those wicked people become a snare to them. So look, well, yeah, you can look back at the book of Judges, chapter 2. This is what we read. Judges 2, 2 and 3. I told you, you shall never make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I tell you, in judgment, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides." and their gods shall be a snare to you. All of a sudden, Canaan's idols, Canaan's wickedness, Canaan's immorality is going to be part of the judgment of God on Israel because they failed to get everyone out of the land. And increasingly, they're going to become like the nations rather and further away from God. Canaanization. These are the days when there are cycles, maybe better, spirals downward of increasing uh, godlessness. So the cycle works its way out six times in the book. We have six main judges. And the story is set for us in the introduction. So if you've still got your eye in Judges, look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. And we'll see, like the, the author of Judges is wanting us to recognize the story I'm about to tell you, beginning with Othniel in verse 7 of chapter 3. This story is going to go through a number of cycles. And if we watch closely, what we would see in the book of Judges is that each story has a judge from a different tribe. Each tribe is going to have enemies from different nations. And the image is that um, 
there's these problems, pockets of problems all over the country. It's not selective. It's actually these six guys are representative of the problem of the entire nation. So here's the cycle that I'm talking about. We begin in verse 11, chapter 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This is the day of Ruth. This is the period of Ruth. In the days that the judges ruled, the people were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They'd abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who'd brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. That's Baal's female consorts. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned. Where had he warned that if you disobey... You'll lose in battle. Where had he warned that? Moses. So Joshua repeated it, but before that it was Moses in the constitution of the United Tribes of Israel that we call Deuteronomy. He said, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Deuteronomy 28, 15, and 25. Just as God had warned, so it was happening, and as the Lord had sworn, and they were in terrible distress. So we look at this picture and we have idolatry. They turned from the Lord. They had other treasures than God. And the result was God gave them over to foreign oppression. We read in verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So not only did God direct the enemies to enter into the land, God's the very one who raised up the judge to represent his his saving power. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods. They bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, so that's stage... Three, idolatry, sorry, stage four is deliverance, but notice why, we'll see why he raised it up. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. So the judges came as a result of cries, of groanings that God responded to, and the groanings arose after foreign oppression because of their sin. And the cycle went around and around. Days of increasing degenerate thinking, relationships, and rule. Now, I just want to focus 
on the book of Judges' portrayal of women as an example of the degeneracy into which Ruth enters and against which this one noble man is fighting against the current of all that is around him in Israel. Boaz is not like the majority of the men in the period of the Judges. So in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1, it's the only, only positive portrayal of a woman as she should be perceived, as she should be represented, as she should be cherished, provided for, protected. Only in Judges 1. Aksa, the daughter of Caleb and wife of Judge Othniel, so Caleb and Joshua, this is his daughter, and she's going to be married to the first judge named Othniel. And she's blessed by her father rather than killed by him. She's in, she inspires a man, her husband, to great acts of obedience rather than seducing him into sin. And she's married within the covenant rather than taking a Canaanite spouse. Now, she's lifted up as an example. This is how it should be. And from that point on, everything goes down in the book of Judges. Because of the judge Barak's unwillingness to accept the responsibility in war without the aid of a woman, Jael is now given the unlikely responsibility of taking a tent peg and slamming it into the temple of the enemy king. Jephthah's daughter faces the negative results of a father who makes a foolish vow. Samson's wife is burned to death as a consequence of his own actions. There's a nameless woman in Judges 19 who is first raped all night long and then she's dismembered and sent out to the far reaches of Israel. The fact that she's nameless, it's as if in the minds of all those who were treating her, she has no personhood. She's brutalized and easily forgotten. This is not how it's supposed to be. Finally, all the women of Benjamin are destroyed through civil war, and those found from other tribes to replace them were either intentionally orphaned by brutal destruction of their immediate families or kidnapped by desperate Benjamite bachelors. This is the world of Ruth. And so when it says, in the days that the judges ruled, it, it intentionally gives us a framework for understanding, oh my, this is indeed the days, Judges 21-25, when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in, its own, in his own eyes. Four times at the end of the book, that refrain happens. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. That's the world Ruth enters into. Next, there was a famine in the land. That's what sparks the movement out of Bethlehem to Moab. Now, what does this tell us? Well, number one, if you've read the covenant, 
then as you work through the history of the covenant, signals like there's a famine in the land should awaken something in your soul. You can't just pass over it because famine is about curse. And curse only comes because of covenant disobedience, which means that the entire nation is being disobedient and God is given a famine and that famine has reached all the way to Bethlehem, which by its name, Beit Lechem, house of bread. That's what Bethlehem is. It's the house of bread, and yet there's no bread. And so the family is forced to leave. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then... The heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down until you are destroyed. Deuteronomy 28, 15, 23, and 24. This is a period of curse. And so we enter into this book recognizing Israel has a lot against it. And it's not only Israel, it's the people in Bethlehem that have a lot against them. And so this is a book, yes, as we're going to see, about redemption, but the redemption has a context. There's deep darkness around. God has made Judah, and Bethlehem in particular, his enemy. And then he's going to reach in and bring redemption in the midst of curse. It's the famine that forces them to leave the house of bread and go to Moab. Now, in the book of Judges, this is what we read. We know that God said, I'm going to keep the peoples in your land and there'll be thorns in your side. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites... Let me see, I'm missing where I want to be. Oh, it's not there. Okay. So they lived among a bunch of Canaanites and other ites. And then it's in chapter 10 that we're going to find out that the Moabites were actually one of the enemies that God raised up to oppress Israel. You remember the fat king Eglon? that Ehud kills with his dagger and his hand seeks, uh, like goes into the rolls of the belly and then you can't even see the dagger because he was so chubby. And that's a Moabite king. So what you need to see is that when we read our story, in light of the book of Judges, they're fleeing to an enemy kingdom that has not treated Israel well. There's all these flags arising from the famine that are telling us things are not right here. But it also draws attention to Bethlehem. Now, if you were to read what the Old Testament authors really cared about, that's my Old Testament survey of Jesus' Bible, you would see that that survey is in a different order has the exact same books as our Old Testament does, but it follows the ordering of the Hebrew Bible, not the English Bible. And Jesus' Hebrew Bible 
in his day had Ruth, not after the book of Judges, but after Malachi and just before Psalms. Malachi isn't the last book in Jesus' Bible. Chronicles is. The law, the prophets, the writings, the writing section begins with Psalms in Jesus' Bible. So all of a sudden, if we're thinking about Ruth in light of Jesus' Bible, and it says Bethlehem, Bethlehem is where they left from, Bethlehem is where they returned to, then all of a sudden we have books like Micah, And before that, 1 Samuel, that tell us about Bethlehem. Who was born in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel? Samuel visited there. David. King David is born in Bethlehem. And King David represents the hopes of Israel. And if you're reading Ruth... In the order of Jesus' Bible, you already know that story. But not only that, who remembers the promise in the book of Micah? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be small among the clans of Judah, what's going to happen? A little louder, I just hear... (laughs) What's going to happen? Somebody loud and bold. What's going to happen in in Bethlehem? Out of you will come the Savior. So Bethlehem is a place of hope. The house of bread is the very place where the bread of life is supposed to rise. And all of a sudden... The fact that there's a famine in the land and it calls them away from Bethlehem, if you're reading Ruth in light of Jesus' Bible, you feel the weight of the fact that they are moving away from the place of hope that the prophets have set up. Don't run from Bethlehem. That's where the Redeemer is supposed to rise from. So, some considerations of significance. If we think the period of the judges, time of curse, time where there's no king and everyone does what is right in his own eyes, in a period of famine, a time of curse, God has put Israel against himself. And yet now we're going to read a book that takes place in the days of a curse, when there's curse on the land, in the days when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, in the days when enemies are infiltrating left and right, and the people continue to spiral down and down and down, into that world is going to be a book that 22 times the word redeem or redeemer is going to show up in just four chapters. 22 times. This is indeed the central thrust of this book. Redeem, redeem. Like God did at the Exodus, He's going to enter into this darkness and deliver. And when He does, it's going to be screaming out like a lighthouse, a beacon pointing them ahead to the Messiah. 
This is a picture of Moab, the plains of Moab. The verse says, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab. That's what they look like, at least in the rainy season. She heard, the Lord has visited the people and given them bread. Let's go back, because I am very empty. So, here's Jerusalem, here's the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee is up here, this is the Mediterranean Sea, this is the Arabian Desert. So, here's Jerusalem, and Moab is right down here. You'll remember, who remembers where Moab and Ammon came from? From Lot. Remember, Lot had two daughters, his wife dies, there was no sons, and so they got their dad drunk, incest, and out comes Benaamon and Moab. And Benaamon became the Ammonites, and Moab settled here and gave rise to an entire people group. So Moab was brought into the world in a context of immorality. The very context is one of brokenness. So, here's Moab down here. Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem on one of the main routes through the land. So, they made their way, likely down through Jerusalem on the road that Jesus went up to Jerusalem from Jericho, down here, and then around to here. This, you can't really cross through here. They could have gone this way, down through Edom, um, but they made their way down here to Moab, and there, it wasn't a great place to be. So we know where they came from, there was a curse on Moab. You remember the story of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet hired by the Moabite king to bring a curse on Moses and Israel. And because of that, God made this declaration. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. So even if a Moabite were to decide to come and sojourn in the land of Israel, other nations could become Israelites. They could be circumcised and participate in the Passover. It would take ten generations after you begin to sojourn in the land for you to be counted as an Israelite and be allowed to worship at the tabernacle. Ten whole generations. That is going to be significant in this book. Moab 
has influence in the days of the judges. I already mentioned that they were some of the enemies that we'd seen. But now we come to, is it significant that Ruth's a Moabitess? What's amazing is that the book, I mean, it just goes out of its way. Let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven times it's going to mention not just Ruth, like it says, Ruth the Moabitess. Like, I know she was the Moabitess. You only need to tell me the first time, but then it says, the way it describes her, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. It's part of the story, part of the awe that Boaz is actually going to be willing to marry her for the sake of Naomi and out of love and protection of her. He's, he, is, is he disobeying the word of God? Ten generations. Doesn't he know anything? So, what's the significance? Number one, this is what I I get from the book of Ruth. That God wholly redeems those who repent. There is real mercy that can counter ten generational curse if there's real repentance. See, you could come into Israel and be circumcised as a male and yet not have a changed heart. But what Ruth tells me is that God is willing to let anyone, even a woman, and I say it that way in light of how the book of Judges portrays them. Indeed, yes, a woman. I am willing, where there is true repentance, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And God says, real Israelite, welcome her in. It's amazing. Countering the the principle that he sets forth in Deuteronomy. How can God justly do such a thing? Where does that kind of redeeming love come from with a God who... Uh, how is it worded? He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. How can he do this? He is one who wholly redeems those who repent. Number two, he's a God who uses broken people for great things. Consider the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab, the former prostitute, the Canaanite, who becomes an Israelite. That's Boaz's mother. So Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now in Matthew chapter 1, what am, what am I reading from right here? 
A genealogy of whom? Of Jesus. And in the matter of two verses, we read about God placing in Jesus' genealogy Jesus' ancestors, a former prostitute, a Moabite who's not supposed to be in the line for ten generations, and a woman who's raped by a king who has a strong hand and loses her husband in grief. That's, that's the picture of Jesus' genealogy. This is a God who enters into brokenness and makes something beautiful. And Ruth is helping to declare such beauty. Number three, we have a God who is slowly making friends out of enemies. Remember what he promised in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 1 through 11, the word curse shows up five times. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the word blessing shows up five times. Eleven chapters, five times. Three verses, five times of blessing. And one of those blessings is that the world that has been cursed, every tribe and tongue and people and language, through you, Abraham, I will bless. And Ruth provides an image, a foretaste of a global blessing when she's brought into the people of God. Some key themes that as you walk through the book of Ruth, I encourage you to keep your eyes open for. Number one, Yahweh treasures covenant faithfulness. This is a world filled with curse because Deuteronomy 28 said, if you disobey me, curse will come. But if you obey me, trusting that I want what's best for you, blessing will overflow. And this is a book, in contrast to the book of Judges, where we're going to see blessing, 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 pouring out on Ruth and Boaz. Why? Because of their dependence on God. Because they're treasuring of God more than all the idols that apparently were abounding around them. Their willingness to trust God in the midst of famine... Your God will be my God. So, what do we see? Yahweh treasuring faithfulness. Look at Ruth 1, 16 and 17. We have a God who looks and sees Ruth. And what does He find? Someone who is loyal both to her mother-in-law Naomi into Naomi's God. This is the verse that I've already said. Do not urge me, she says while still in Moab, to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And God looks at that and sees beauty. She's dependent on this God. Notice how Boaz describes her in chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done to your mother-in-law. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. He can see what she's done, under whose wings you have come to find refuge. It's not just words in chapter 1, 16, and 17. 
Boaz can see by her change of life, by the way that she is serving her mother-in-law, this is out of the norm. And you're willing to enter into a world where women are brutalized. And you're trusting in this God. You have come here to find refuge under His wings. Chapter 3, verse 11. Notice how he talks about her. Now, my daughter, don't fear. You've just asked me to marry you. I like the idea. Don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. This is the exact same phrase. It only shows up two other times, both in the book of Proverbs, one of which is in Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character. Very literally, a worthy woman who can find. In the Middle Ages, the Jews, there was a group of Jews that reorganized their Bible and took all the small books and put them in an order and aligned them with Jewish feasts. And Ruth ended up being directly then after the book of Proverbs. So that Proverbs 31 said, A worthy woman, who can find? And you'd turn the page and you'd see... Here's one. And she's a Moabitess. Jesus' Bible most likely wasn't in that order. The earliest we have of that ordering is from 1500 AD, 1500. Whereas Jesus, the, the ordering that puts Psalms way in front of, sorry, Ruth in front of Psalms at the beginning of the writings reaches all the way back before the days of Jesus. So that's why I think it's there, but, but there's a legitimacy in, in identifying, here's the worthy woman. Here she is. Boaz is called a worthy man. Chapter 2, verse 1. She went, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And he is one who is faithful to the covenant. And I don't have time to unpack this, but you will unpack it. There's this weird law in the Old Testament called leveret marriage. Levere is Latin for brother-in-law. It's the brother-in-law law. So that if you're married, and it seems to me most likely it only... I, I, it, it seems that it would only work if your brother-in-law is single, and if not, it would move on. I have to read that between the lines, but the portrayal of marriage suggests this. But if you're the husband and you die, then your brother would have the responsibility to take on your former wife, your dead, your widow as his wife. And the first of the offspring would not inherit your property, but would be inheritor of the dead husband's property so that that property could stay in the family name. This is a book about leveret marriage because the Levere was also throughout the Bible called the Redeemer. And if 
a brother-in-law was not there, then it would go to the next relative that would bear the responsibility. And it wasn't a responsibility wherein you would be bound to keep it if you had reasons that you didn't, that you couldn't, but it was the right thing to do in honor of the, the widow and in honor of your brother. And as you'll see, it demanded a great amount of trust in God. Boaz is one who's willing to enter into this kind of relationship. He is a covenant follower. Now, I could have said this is Ruth and Naomi, and yet they probably didn't have the water bottle. Um, (laughs) But it gives you an image. Yahweh the redeeming God, second theme. This is beautiful. I noted that Redeemer shows up 22 times in this book. Redeem or Redeemer. Chapter 2, verse 20 is where we first see it. And this is what Naomi says, Oh, you've met Boaz. That man is a close relative of ours, one of our Redeemers. Boaz, just before that, said, You've come to find refuge under the wings of God. Naomi says, you go hang out at the threshing floor and ask that guy if he'll be the Redeemer and marry you. And this is what Boaz says. Who are you, my daughter? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me. Just in the previous chapter, he said, you've come to... to, Find refuge under the wings of God. And now Boaz, through Ruth's words, is being portrayed as the agent of God. How is it that she will find refuge under God? It's because someone tangible will show up and be God to her. Representing, reflecting, resembling Him. And Boaz is that man. So what we want to see is that as we see the character of Boaz in this story, he is representing for Ruth what God will be for all of Israel through first the initial David and then for all the world through the greater David. The Redeemer is a picture of God Himself. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And Isaiah built on this image. Isaiah 53, suffering servant, Jesus dies and rises. If he will but offer himself as a guilt offering, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, then so he's, he's a guilt offering. That means he's on the altar before God and he dies. He's burned up. If he will but offer himself as a guilt offering, then he will see his offspring. That means he's had to rise. That's Isaiah 53. Death and resurrection of the Son of God. Isaiah 54 then unpacks the implications of Isaiah 53 for the covenant community. And this is how it words it. Think Redeemer, think widowhood, think the book of Ruth. I'm in Isaiah 54, 
somewhere. It's 54, 4 and 5. Here we go. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. This is the husband talking to the bride, like Boaz talks to Ruth. But this is Yahweh on a global scale. You will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. How will he redeem Jerusalem? Through the suffering servant. Yahweh redeems, sets the stage for the backdrop of the work of Christ. Last theme, Yahweh will fulfill his promises to redeem and restore Israel. Oh, this is huge and I'm already out of time. What should I do? Okay. Turn with me to Ruth 4. I say, this is, this is the key theme of this book. This is, this is where it's taking us. Yahweh will fulfill His promises to redeem and restore Israel ultimately through the line of David. Number one, through Boaz and Ruth, God is doing something, says this book, that is akin to what Leah and Rachel did in birthing Israel. Look with me at Ruth 4.11. This is the crowds celebrating this wedding. All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord, hear this, may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house, Boaz, May this woman be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. When we read the story of Ruth, we're supposed to be thinking about a new Israel. Judges has already told us what the first Israel has done. Twelve tribes that have gone into wickedness. Canaanization. But what God is doing in this book is, is bringing a man and a woman through whom He's going to birth a new people of God, a new creation. May Ruth and Boaz, may the fruit of this woman's womb be like a new Israel. Number two, the book's last word. Have you ever noticed it? David. David. This one word sends a trajectory of hope into the future. 2 Samuel 7, God promised David before he fell. God promised him, you're not the one, but behold, I'll raise up an offspring and I will be a father to him and he will be my son and his throne will last forever. An eternal dynasty. David. David, Isaiah 9, 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah is preaching after David, the first David is dead. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he says this, 
Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice. Now many of the prophets even talk about the future son and use the name David they, as if that's his name. And so we shouldn't be confused as we're reading through the prophets and it says David is coming. David will reign. Like in Jeremiah 23, it says, no, in Ezekiel 34, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Well, Ezekiel is preaching in days when Jerusalem has already fell and there's no king once again on the throne. And yet he says, David's coming. David's coming. And when we read the book of Ruth in light of Jesus' Bible, we've already read Isaiah and we've already read Jeremiah, we've already read Ezekiel. Indeed, Jerusalem has already fallen and prophets like Haggai and Zechariah have already returned. Malachi, I mean, it's, it's very similar in Malachi like we see in Judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no king in the land. And then we read Ruth. That's the very next book. And Ruth enters into that darkness and uses her story as an analogy of hope for a future David. The ending recalls promises about the Messiah in the book of Genesis. There are ten people in the genealogy that end the book. The last ten-member genealogy that we found in the book was the genealogy of Adam in Genesis chapter 5, which leads us from the promise of the offspring in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman, a single male descendant, would crush the head of the serpent. And that serpent, though, would have offspring. And Genesis is filled with two genealogies. The offspring of the serpent, that is, those who are identified and look like the devil, and those hoping in the offspring of promise. Well, Genesis chapter 5 is one of those genealogies that is focused all on the offspring of promise. Those who are hoping in the coming Messiah. Then, so, so that puts us in the context of messianic hope, this five-member genealogy. But notice who the first character is. Perez. Perez. Now, in, gen in chapter 4, we read, where is it, about Tamar? Verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Do you remember that story? That was another case, and it's the only other case in the Bible, of leveret marriage. Judah had three sons. His first son was married to Tamar. They never had any children. He died because he was a sinner and God punished him to death. So the second son married Tamar, but he didn't want to raise up offspring for his brother. So God killed him too. The last son is Shua. And Judah was scared that he was going to lose all three of his sons, so he didn't give Shua to Tamar. So Tamar dressed up like a prostitute after years went by and she realized that Shua was never given to her. And she seduces Judah in and she gets pregnant. It's a big mess filled with sin. And yet 
When Judah wants to kill her because she's been unfaithful, she gives him his driver's license and he realizes, oh my, you've been keeping this all this time, nine whole months, and you're more righteous than me. I should have given you my son. I was disobedient to God and, and Moses. And Perez, she, so, so Perez is born in the context of an immoral Broken relationship. And in Deuteronomy 23, in the verse just prior to, I will not let a Moabite be in the land, be in, be in the assembly. In the very previous verse, Deuteronomy 23, 22, I think, it says, and I will not let a child born of a sexual, sexually immoral relationship be part of the community. It means I would have never been able to enjoy the presence of God in the Old Testament. My biological father was gone before my mom even knew she was pregnant. It's that type of brokenness into which Perez was born. Ten generations, David is the tenth, which means on paper he too should not be able to enter into the assembly of the Lord. And yet, he's the very one who brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, dancing in the presence of God. He's the one who appoints the Levitical singers to give praises. He's the one who buys all the stuff to build the temple. David is the leader of worship in Israel. Ruth is setting us up to celebrate Hope in the Messiah. Concluding thoughts. This is far more than a story about Ruth and Boaz. It's a beautiful love story, but oh, fit into our Bible? This is designed to give broken people living in an age of curse hope in all that God promised He would do related to the kingdom. In a world where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, God preserved a man. He preserved a foreign woman who put their hope in God and their very lives set a trajectory for readers who need hope. The story becomes both an answer and a lens. An answer. Because of where Ruth fits in Jesus' Bible, we already have learned about the history of the covenant, Jerusalem's downfall, the darkness and all the curse that is over all of Israel. It's not just David's ancestors who were in exile in Moab. It's David's descendants who were in exile in Persia. And for both, God is going to use a redeemer from Bethlehem to save them. Ruth becomes answered because out of Bethlehem, the Redeemer will rise. And so the story of what took place in the past provides a, an answer to the darkness, but it also gives us a lens, a lens now for reading the Psalms, like the New Testament authors read the Psalms. Not as stories about David, but as stories about the great tribulation and triumph of their Messiah, Jesus. When Jesus read the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was about Jesus. Acts chapter 2. What did 
David say concerning the Messiah in Psalm 1611? His body will not see corruption. I'm not talking about David here. David's body is in the tomb. You can see it. Reading Ruth through as a lens that invites us to read with the hope of a future David leads us to read the Psalms the way that we're supposed to read them as messianic music. Less about the first David and more about the coming one. The new and ultimate David will do on a global scale, that is, Jesus will do on a global scale what Boaz does on a personal scale and what the first David does on a national scale. Boaz and David, the first David, their characters are portrayed in, in very similar ways until David's downfall. We're supposed to see a connection here, but both of them are merely pointers to a greater David. Jesus. So what was true for David's ancestors living in exile, redeemed by a God-honoring man from Bethlehem, is true for all of us as David's descendants, redeemed by a God-honoring man from Bethlehem. This book will set us up to celebrate the Christ. So I invite you to read it with those kinds of eyes in hunger to see Jesus just awaken joy in Jesus. He's a Christ who comes to redeem broken people like us in a very cursed world. I didn't get to focus on, I didn't unpack the character of Boaz, but it's amazing how he's portrayed as a contrast to the men of the period of the Judges. They want to deplete, he wants to fill. They want to harm, he's there to protect. He is portraying for us an ideal man that we meet in the person of Jesus. Thanks for letting me come. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.